From the Center for the Study and Teaching of Writing at The Ohio State University, this is Writer's Talk. I'm Doug Dangler. Today, Grant Cardone, author of the business text, The 10X Rule, joins us to discuss how to get a job in the new economy. But first, I talk to singer-songwriter Beth Wood, who will be in town on October 14th as part of the Six String Concert Series, and she tells me what life is like as a songwriter and the politics involved in songwriting. Stay tuned. Beth Wood will be in town with Six String Concert Series on October 14th, and she will Mm -hmm. be playing off her latest album called The Weather Inside. So welcome, Beth Wood, to Writer's Talk. Thank you. Tell me about the writing of The Weather Inside. How was this album different for you, the same? What did it do for you? This album was different for me in that this is the first time I actually had more songs than I needed. (laughs) So uh, it was an interesting process of kind of going through and and deciding which ones were going to be part of this sort of collection um, and which ones went together, which ones didn't. Um, so that was a really interesting process for me. Um, it was more this this record was more about editing, I think, than some of the other ones. That's excellent because on Writer's Talk we love to hear about revision. Ah, uh, uh, so, yes. <laughs> so <laughs> tell me about that uh, that revision, that editing, that choosing between songs. How does mm-hmm. that work for you? Well, it's um, you know it's never easy to you know, sort of choose one song over the other because they're they're all meaningful to me. But um, on this particular project, it was the first time that I'd worked with a producer in several albums. And um, his name is Billy Crockett. He's a wonderful producer and musician. And we worked together to sort of figure out what the vision was of the project and what which songs fit and which didn't. And this was actually the first time that I'd ever gone through with somebody and kind of looked at each song and and tried to go through and revise and edit to, to an extent that I've never actually done before. It was really challenging, but really interesting way to go about things. So did that impact the way that you wrote some of these songs? How did it materially change them? Were you talking about lyrical content or was it the music, the structure? What did you work on in this new way? Most of the structure, you know, was kind of there and pretty much set. But there's one song in particular called The House That Made Me that that we spent a lot of time just kind of carving on it and trying to figure out, okay, what am I really trying to say here? And what do I want this to look like? So I ended up completely rewriting the bridge so that it was totally different than the original one I'd written. And I never could have done that without somebody else's help. It was really interesting. So, but that one in particular, we, we sort of reworked musically and lyrically in the, the bridge part. So you are somebody that comes to the studio and since studio time is expensive, you've already got your songs worked out. Yes. You've already got what you want to do. So that's what made that unusual. But tell me about when you're starting out uh, a song for say, for example, something like The New Kid, mm-hmm. uh, which is a song about a student starting at a new school. Mm-hmm. And what's the story behind that song? How did you write it? Well, The New Kid was one of those um, rare songs where I got the idea for the song and immediately when that light bulb went off in my head, I could see what the structure of the song was going to look like. 
And um, I was having a conversation with some friends and my husband and I had been moving around a lot. And so I remember saying to them, you know, it's really weird to be the new kid again. And then I heard this sort of ding in my head and I was like, wait a minute, new kid, that's the song. All these little people belonging in their rows The blackboard stretching on for miles I am the new kid in the hand-me-down clothes Trying to conjure up a smile I knew immediately what the basic outline of the song was going to be and how I wanted to show, you know, the little kid in the classroom in the first verse. And then I wanted to show the progression through life, um, you know, through first love in the second verse. And then in the last verse, I wanted to show this character's first experience with death and going to a funeral. So I knew that I wanted to sort of depict this over time and show that that feeling of, of being new and not knowing what you're doing is kind of with you your whole life. And uh, and so it was really interesting to be able to write a song that way where the, the outline was already there. That's a great way to uh, talk about songwriting. I like the idea of the form coming there right at the beginning. And then all you got to do is just yeah. put some words to it. You know, seems really easy, right? No, well, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I will say that when you when you have an idea of structure or what your form is going to be, I wouldn't say it makes it easy, but it definitely, um, it gives you some guidelines and it's sort of like, you know, working a puzzle backwards. It's like, you know, I don't know, you know what the final thing is going to look like. And so you just have to figure out what the pieces are, okay. if that makes any sense. Sure. Is that something that you've experienced a lot of times in your writing? You'll come up with it and say, this is what I think the structure of the song is going to be. Now I'm going to work on telling the story that I want to say. Or do you have times when you say, here's a story and I want to, you know, experiment with structure, for mm -hmm. example, in songwriting? Yeah. I mean, I think it's pretty, obviously there's, there are common structures within songwriting that, you know, that are often used. It's pretty rare for me for a structure to to come to me when I begin writing a song. Usually structure is something that you kind of work out over time. And because the most important thing is to be able to tell your story or get your emotion across, whatever you're trying to do with the song. And then the structure kind of presents itself later. So to have that outline come at the first is kind of a rare gift. <laughs> I've got a question for you about close your eyes. Here we go again. Uh, mm -hmm. I've been debating on the the lyrical content to it, and oh, it, it mm -hmm. contains references to war and mm -hmm. accepting sort of the difficulties of life. So mm -hmm. what prompted you to write it? Well, that song was the result of a workshop that I went to, and our assignment was to write about one of our relatives. And uh, my grandmother used to tell me a story about how when my granddad was getting ready to ship off to World War II, he was stationed in Cape Cod, and my grandmother, my whole family's from Texas, um, so my grandmother took her two babies and loaded them up in the car and drove all the way to Cape Cod to say goodbye to my granddad, and then drove all the way back to Texas, and uh, it was kind of an epic journey, but the thing that struck me about her story was she talked about how people really helped each other out at that time, and came together around a common cause. When they found out where she was going, they offered to fill her gas tank or, you know, give her a meal or help her out. And I was really touched by that. And so I started, I thought I was going to write a song about that. And 
I wrote the first verse and chorus, and then I realized at that point that I had an opportunity to tell my granddad's side of the story as well. And so that's what I tried to do with the second verse. Is it's, it's almost like, you know, two different scenes. And so the second verse is telling his story of what happened. And then the third verse is, of course, when he comes home again and it sort of wraps it all up. But, but that's the background behind that song. Just a little baby, brother three years old. Father went to fight in the war. A headstrong Texas lady took us on the road. Cradle of our nation, so weary and so poor. And everywhere we went, there was a candle, a spark of kindness in every window. She said, This world gives you nothing you can't handle. Close your eyes. The, uh, the, I think the ambiguity I was getting at in sort of my reaction to it was, uh, you know, at a, a time when the U.S. is engaged in a, a war, mm-hmm. whether that, you know, how as a songwriter you dealt with the, the potential political liabilities of it or working through writing something like that because, you know, I, I read through it and thought, okay, this is going to be either a historical piece or maybe it's a comment on what's going on now. Mm-hmm. Um, there are pieces that didn't fit the Chili River, right? That would not uh-huh. happen. And so, yes. <laughs> so it, it, it was really interesting to me without getting into politics, what your feeling is about, you know, writing a song like that. Did that occur to you at the time? Did it make you think, um, how do I handle this? How do I work within the framework of the story I want to tell without falling into having to engage those sorts of discussions? Or maybe you welcome them. It's really interesting and it's a touchy thing to write about and I had I actually did have some reservations about writing the song at all. My grandparents are gone now, but people in their my grandfather's generation were not open about their experiences in the war and they didn't talk about things like that. But there's a part of me that understands that telling their story is is a way of healing. And it's kind of a universal theme throughout this project. Um, the the uh, title track called The Weather Inside is actually, I'm really interested in how war affects not only the people who are in it, but the people who are back at home as well. And how it kind of has a, 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 a ripple effect throughout families and throughout entire societies um, that we maybe don't recognize or we're just beginning to recognize I think these days so I was thinking about those things a lot and realizing that I could talk about that through my grandparents story well let's go from a really heavy subject to a lighter one you have a song Uh called clean up before I changed my mind Uh, great segue right (laughs) but on this song, it's about uh, one person who may or may not be you talking to her partner who may or may not be yours, uh, mm-hmm. who the second person seems to be uh, uh, organizationally challenged, perhaps. Um, th- <laughs> That's one way to put it. <laughs> there are some uh, specific instances of clothing being left around, maybe doors mm-hmm. not being shut when they should be, mm-hmm. things along those lines. So tell me about the writing of this song 
And I'm interested uh, in the aftermath of the writing of this song, if there was anybody who might have been implicated in the song who had reactions to it. (laughs) Well, this song is entirely a true story, and it's about my husband. And he is a very good sport. He doesn't mind me um, writing and singing about this. He thinks it's really funny. It's just one of those things where you, you know, living with somebody is a lot different than dating somebody. <laughs> and, uh, and it takes a while to get adjusted to, uh, to living together. And this was just sort of a funny way of, of, um, of me dealing with my frustrations of our, our different levels of housekeeping. You may feel that some tasks are just too lowly But take out the stinking trash and the love of all that is good and whole has really changed anything but that's okay (laughs) it's really fun it's such a fun song to sing because obviously what we were talking about the the last song you know sometimes the subject matter can get pretty heavy and seeing a concert can be an emotional thing and it's really fun to to lighten it up and you know make people laugh every now and then Mm-hmm. Well, I think this song accomplishes that, and it may be a, a cry uh, for cooperation <laughs> throughout a generation here. There you go. I think it's funny, too, because people don't expect it to come from me. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm, I'm a really nice person, and so <laughs> they don't expect me to stand up and say that. Clean up but, your, um, pick up your underwear, pick up exactly. your clothes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've never heard that myself. I wouldn't understand the obligation. Difficulties. Well, Beth Wood, thank you very, very much for talking to us today on Writer's Talk, and we look forward to your October 14th appearance with Six String Concerts. Oh, me too. Thanks so much for having me on. Have a great day. That was my guest, Beth Wood, who will be in Columbus on October 14th as part of the Six String Concert Series. More information on her concert is available at www.sixstring.org. And now, changing from the entertainment industry to business, although they're often the same thing, I'll talk with Grant Cardone. Welcome to Writer's Talk, Grant Cardone. Today we're going to be talking about the 10X Rule, your latest book for business people and those interested in getting into entrepreneurship and many other areas. Tell me a little bit about the book. How did it start? How did you begin writing it? Well, this is my fourth book in the last uh, since the Lehman's collapse, uh, Doug. And this book is about how much effort and energy that people need to take in this new economy. People are underestimating what it takes to get a job, to to push a job through, um, or to build to build their business because they're used to working in a different environment. Tell me a little bit about what people can expect when they're reading the book. What is the message? The, the message is okay. Ex- people can actually calculate exactly what they need to do now to adjust their thinking and their actions in order to get something done. Like most of the businesses, I'm, I'm out here in, uh, um, at the Grandville Inn right now, not far from where you are. Mm-hmm. And there's 
a local business owner here of 10 car dealerships, and he's very interested in what it takes to move the ball down the field now. So the reader is going to get, whether you're a small business, unemployed, or whether you're a mid-sized business, you're going you're gonna to know the exact calculations necessary to get something done, which is probably 10 times more than it was three or four years ago when you had free money, an economy that was blasting, people that were almost hysterically just spending money without any kind of consciousness. How did you do the background for the book? Tell me about the way that you decided this, that, that led you to the idea of it being the 10x rule and then led into the, the creation of the text. Well, it, it's interesting because um, when I was writing the book, I realized that I had not made – I had made a mistake in my own career. I owned three different businesses. One's real estate, one's software, and one's my training company. And I realized that I would basically set my targets incorrectly, that I would set targets that were too small when I should have made a much bigger push at the marketplace. And I told my wife, I said, you know what? I need to get a TV show is what I need to do. If I want enough attention for my products and my services, I need to go TV because the people that are on TV are getting the right orders of magnitude, if you will, of uh, publicity and attention to move products or concepts. And so I said, I wonder if I could get a TV show. And so I started looking at what it what it would take just to get somebody's attention to do this. You know, the number of phone calls and contacts and the people that you have to reach is what I was discovering in 10X that look, it's not one or two phone calls. It's probably not 10. It's probably more like a hundred or 150 just to find the right players. Okay. So a lot a lot of this book was me basically trying to figure out what it would take a no-name person to get a TV deal. By the time the book was finished, I had a TV deal with National Geographic. Tell me about the segue into National Geographic and the program that you do for them. You had researched it for this book and then started doing that as as well, right? I didn't target them exactly. I mean, they're actually not probably the right candidate for that show, but they did do two segments on it, two one-hour segments. But what happened was in the beginning, it was like, okay, I need to get attention. I posted 400 videos on YouTube over a 22-month period. That's almost 20 videos a month. And different concepts, different ideas, uh, uh, really hitting on some of the local, uh, not just local, but national stories that were going on over that 22-month period. Mm-hmm. And being not, rather than just receiving news, almost making an effort to make news, if you will. Mm-hmm. And some of that video got picked up by production companies out of New York that later sold the show to uh, National Geographic because they found the information on you on my YouTube channel interesting enough. Tell me about making so many videos at once. Um, how many people did you have helping you with it? What kind of uh, difficulties did you find moving into a medium like that and moving into it so quickly? Well, in the beginning, I didn't have any people. It was like, I, you know, I was I was either making video when I was traveling on the road or and some of it's low production. Some of it was not edited. Some of it didn't have an entry. It didn't have an exit. It didn't have a call to action. But over time, as we started getting more traction with it and more uh, attention from from existing clients and new clients, obviously, I put more resources into it. Now we have three people in an Internet office. Um, that are editing or chopping video almost daily now. But everybody should be using that medium right now to make themselves, their products and their services known. It's not like an ad, though. Don't think in terms of, oh, I'm going to advertise my book on it. 
It's about getting yourself known in the marketplace. And what's your suggestion about, uh, you said, getting yourself known in the marketplace? I mean, it's interesting that you're talking about that in relation to to the YouTube when you were looking to pick up this book uh, to help get a television deal. I'm curious about your feelings towards YouTube versus television. Obviously, you're viewing TV as still the most powerful marketing tool or way of communicating with people in the marketplace. Right. So... I think they all work hand in hand, whether it's Google Plus or Facebook or uh, video on YouTube, whether it's text or video or even personal visit. There's none excluding the other. There's no killers out there. I think social media and YouTube channels, dropping video, that kind of conceptual thinking is what I'm talking about in the 10X rule. It got me my third book deal, the YouTube videos. Uh, and the number of things that I post online, even blogging, got me my third book deal and my fourth book deal and a TV show. People are not doing enough. People are thinking, I'm going to go with one medium. You can't. You don't know where your clientele is today. You don't know whether they're online or on a TV channel. You don't know. You know, if you look at guys like Anderson Cooper, they're on three different TV channels now. This was unheard of years ago. If you were a CNN guy, that's all you did. Now you CNN, Fox, and he'll show up on different TV channels. So you want to be everywhere. There's a chapter in the book that I call Omnipresent. Omnipresence is the concept of being everywhere all at the same time. So if you could, or a small business or an individual can find themselves doing video, blogging, posting on Facebook or Google Plus or Twitter, you want to be in as many places as you possibly can be in right now. How do you find the time to do that? <laughs> this is the number one thing that people tell me. They're like, you know, man, how, how do you find the time to do it? If you're looking for a job, then your job, your new job is to get a job. And that means you need to get out there and beat it. If you have a job, then you need to prioritize, okay, what am I doing to, to let people know about who I am and what I'm doing and what my product is? And maybe they're not ready for it right now, but if they're not thinking about you when they are ready, you're going to have more time on your hands than you want. So <laughs> like today, I'll probably tweet probably 15 times. Mm-hmm. Takes me a total of about maybe, uh, you know, three minutes, four minutes. I'll post on three different Facebook pages. We'll drop one video on YouTube for sure. I'll do this interview. I'll sit in a conference. I'll probably make 12 phone calls. I mean, you got to do it all right now. This is a very difficult economy, and it's going to be difficult for years to come. And if people aren't willing to make the time to take the action to disseminate themselves and their products, they're going to, be, they're going to pay the price. You also have, um, interestingly, on your website, a uh, blog, and the, one of the recent entries is The Gift of Obsession. And I think that that's what you're getting at in discussing the need to be in so many places at once. You're looking for becoming obsessed with it. Is that uh, part of the, the 10X rule? Yeah, kind of. It's like, you know, my whole life, well, not my whole life, but most of my career life, people are like, Dude, you're, you're just an extreme human being and you're obsessed and you're ADD and you're this and that. And I'm like, dude, I'm none of those things. Why are you making wrong my excitement and my enthusiasm? Mm-hmm. You know, and, and I'm not saying you are, I'm saying other people. Why, why label it with something like obsessed? And if I am obsessed, then you know what? I want some more of this because it's working for me. So when my business expands during a contraction, that's a survival thing for me and my family. That's not a bad thing. And, um, and so what I'm suggesting to people is that maybe 
the middle class in America has used the wrong financial and business policies for too many years, which is just get by, enjoy life, take a vacation, you know, load up the credit cards where what you might, the middle class might need to do is create abundance and affluence, not just get by, not just enough, but really take massive action in the marketplace and create another level of success for themselves. Okay. Tell me about Cardone University. It's on your website. Um, what is that, the, the background behind that and uh, the development of it? Cardone University is a multimedia, multi-million dollar um, website that allows p- sales organizations to access very short video clips. There's probably 800 video clips there. That's in addition to all the YouTube stuff we did, completely different material. And this is stuff that salespeople can access or sales organizations can access for sales meetings, sales training, sales motivation, uh, and even sales solutions. Like today, sometime today, somebody in Columbus is going to be like, oh, I'm going to go to iTunes and get a, my favorite song. Well, they would go to Cardone University and get uh, possibly a solution to a selling situation whereby let's say the client was on a budget. They can actually go and search budget and video little 15 second clips of video will pop up where I show salespeople how to handle the budget problem or the budget objection in this case. Okay. You know, you're talking about a lot of um, sales techniques and um, showing new video and things like that. Is there a book that um, you were particularly fond of or felt really helped you move towards some of these ideas? Maybe one of your favorite uh, business writing authors? Yeah. You know, I love the book uh, Made to Stick. I forget the guy that wrote that book, but love that book. I recently read Crush It. Love that. What was it that attracts you to those authors? What is, is it the, I mean, what part of the message really resonated with you? Uh, you know, you know, made to stick, like, who am I? You know, what, 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 how can I get people to think about me? I mean, in this environment, you want, you want to be at the front, the forefront of the customer's mind, regardless of what you're selling. When they're ready to pull the trigger, you want them thinking, oh, what about that guy, that, that, that guy with the accent from LA, you know, that, that's the guy. <laughs> So, so um, you have to be at the forefront of people's mind when they're ready to roll today because you don't have as many clients. You know, you got a contracted environment. So, I don't know that I go for Arthur. So, I, I, I read a lot of books. I'll grab any book. I'm looking for a million dollar idea in every book I buy. I, I'm not looking for a thirty dollar value. So, you've got those two books, and uh, what's the in the final few minutes we have? What's the million dollar idea out of ten x? I get that you're very passionate, very enthusiastic about the uh, working very hard. Um, is that the million dollar idea you want somebody to take away? Yeah, yeah. I think the million dollar idea is to be to be omnipresent, to make yourself be seen, heard, and thought of every possible avenue you can. There's not one avenue now. It's not the billboard on the highway. It's not the radio ad only. It's not just TV. It's if you're gonna go, if you're gonna go down, if you're not gonna make it, go down swinging and blasting as hard as you possibly can. Okay. Well, Grant Cardone, thank you very much for being here on Writers Talk. I really appreciate it. Thanks a lot, Dove. Thank you. More information about my guests Beth Wood and Grant Cardone can be found at the Writers Talk website at www.writerstalk.org. 
Writer's Talk comes to you from the Center for the Study and Teaching of Writing at The Ohio State University. You can watch videos of select interviews at www.writerstalk.org and friend us on Facebook at facebook.com slash writerstalk. Join us next time for an OSU student show as Leslie Goodwin interviews comic and writer Amy Schumer about comedy writing. Schumer's comments at the roast of Charlie Sheen provoked some discussion about the boundaries of humor, and Leslie will talk to her about that. Also, science fiction author R.A. Salvatore discusses the craft of writing science fiction with OSU student and Lantern reporter Lindsay Fox. This will be a broadcast of the live interview that Lindsay will do at the Ohio State University Bookstore on October 11th at 7 p.m. with R.A. Salvatore, so think about going there. Well, our previously scheduled interview with Jackie Collins will be broadcast at a later time as it was delayed due to a technical difficulty. We apologize for that, but it will be available later. So until next time, this is Doug Dangler from Ohio State University. Keep writing. Keep writing.